Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 is our text for this morning. We spent the last 35 weeks looking at Hebrews chapter 11. We will not spend 35 weeks in Hebrews chapter 12, okay? But those 35 weeks, we taught you what it meant to live by faith. What does it mean to trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean to uh, believe absolutely in all that God says that you might behave accordingly to all that God says? That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. And truth be told, the first three verses of Hebrews 12 could be a part of Hebrews chapter 11. So you could say this is number 36 of, the, of, of chapter 11 if you want to. But it, it, it carries with it the whole tone of, of faith and, and belief and the quintessential leader, Christ himself, who lived a life of trusting and obedience to his Father in heaven. And so as we look at the race of faith, we've already seen the reality of faith in chapter 11. This now is the race of faith. How do you endure all the way to the end? How do you keep on keeping on? What is it that motivated these people in Hebrews chapter 11 to go all the way to the end when they did not receive the promise of the new covenant, the promise of the coming Messiah? What kept them moving? What kept them going? How do they stay trusting in the Lord all that time, that they might finish the race completely. Because the race is endured. The race is finished by those who enter. And so the writer begins with talking about we or us, because he's addressing a Jewish audience. And when he uses the word we or us, he's talking about the Jewish audience in general. When he uses beloved or brethren, he's talking about the Christian Jews, those Jews who embrace the Messiah. But when he uses the word we or us, he's talking about Judaism in general, those Jews that are present in the room who are listening to this letter as it is read, that they might follow the Lord. And so if you're a, a Jew and you're a believer in the Messiah, then you need to have these principles in your life to endure all the way to the end. If you are a Jew and you're listening and yet have yet to embrace the Messiah, you need to enter the race of faith and follow the principles that I'm about to give you. Hebrews 12, 1-3 reads as follows, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews uses a metaphor of a race. And all throughout Scripture, there are different metaphors that the writers use to help us understand the Christian life, whether it's warfare or whether it's um, the, uh, the branches and the vine, whether it's, um, well, there's, there's a myriad of things. But the, the one about a race is used quite frequently by the Apostle Paul. In fact, he says over in 1 Corinthians 9, these words, verse number 24, he says very clearly, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. 
So he talks about the race. He talks about the discipline of the race. He talks about beating his body into subjection, lest he be become disqualified in the race of faith. He goes on later in Philippians chapter 2, verse number 16, and says these words. He says, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. When he runs the race, he doesn't want to do it in vain. He wants to do it with a purpose. He does it so he can honor and glorify the Lord. Paul, at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, as he's about to die, says that his life is being poured out as a drink offering, that he's already run the race. He's already been engaged in the warfare, and now he's about to finish it all, and now there lays up in store for him a crown of righteousness, not just for him only, but for all those who love his appearing. So he knows where he's going, but he has fought the fight. He has run the race. He's about to finish that race. And so what are the principles that the writer of Hebrews gives us that we might not grow weary and lose heart, that we might be able to run the race effectively, the race of faith that is set before us? So important. I'm going to give you five words this morning, five words that will introduce to us five principles that will help us to run effectively. First word is investigation. Second word is separation. Third word, determination. Fourth is fixation. And fifth is consideration. Okay? Five words. Very familiar passage of Scripture. The first word is investigation. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. There, first of all, needs to be an investigation. Investigation of who? Of what? Well, these witnesses that surround us. Now, I know that many people think that these witnesses are looking down upon us and that we're in this arena running this race and they're looking down, cheering us on. That, that's just not the case. In fact, this is where people get the idea that your loved ones who have died and gone on to glory are looking down upon you. I, I got news for you, and I'm going to disappoint you this morning. They're not looking down upon you. In fact, they don't even care what you're doing. They're in glory. All right? They're with the Lord. Their mind is not set on earth. It's in glory. They're in his presence. At the right hand are pleasures forevermore, right? They're in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no remembrance of things that have happened on earth. That would be a sinful remembrance, and there's no sin in heaven or remembrance of bad things in glory. It's all about the praise and honor and glory of God. So all your loved ones, your grandparents, your father, your mother, your aunt, your uncle, Billy Joe, Billy Bob, whoever it is, they've gone to glory and they're not even thinking about you. All right? There's nowhere in scriptures that ever seen. So this cloud of witnesses are not witnessing us, but they are witnesses to the trustworthiness of God to take them through difficult times that they might run their race effectively all the way to the end. So there needs to be an investigation on our part as to what it is about them that made them the kind of people that they were. And we spent 35 weeks investigating them. Now, we just scratched the surface. You can go all the way back in the Old Testament and read about these people and do an in-depth study of them, which would be a good thing to do because you're studying the Scriptures to realize who these people are, what they've done, how they've lived their lives, so you might follow in obedience as they did, they trusted and obeyed amidst difficult circumstances. How did Abraham learn to trust the Lord when God said, take now your son, your only son, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah? 
but he obeyed. He trusted and obeyed. How did Noah trust and obey when God said, build an ark because it's going to rain when he'd never seen rain? Do it in the middle of a desert where there are no trees, but build the ark because it's going to rain and I'm going to destroy the world. It took him 120 years. How did he endure for 120 years? How did he do this? How did he endure all the ridicule and all the, all the uh, rejection of those around about him? For 120 years, how did he do that? How did Moses' parents and how did Moses himself not fear the king's edict? How would they live a fearless life? They were people who lived trusting and obeying their God. Because they believed Everything he said, absolutely, and behaved accordingly. That's what faith is. That's the reality of faith. And they were able to enter the race of faith and finish it all the way to the end simply because they believed what God said. So for us to do that, there needs to be an investigation. A investigation of all those witnesses that have gone before us, that have lived a life of faith. How important is that? How important is it for us to be able to study the Scriptures, to understand what the Bible says, and to realize that these people lived great lives? Romans 15, verse number 4 says, These things in the Old Testament were written for our instruction, that through encouragement and perseverance of Scripture we might have what? Hope. Our hope comes because we read about these people. We understand what God did in their lives. There needs to be an investigation of these witnesses. That's number one. Number two, there needs to be a separation. A separation from my weights. Investigation of the witnesses and a separation from my weights and all the sin that so easily besets me. That's what the writer says. He says it this way. He says, let us lay aside every encumbrance or weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. Therefore, we can run the race. But there needs to be a separation. Now, you know and I know that, that sin is a hindrance to our running the race well and finishing the race, right? We understand that. We get that. Whether it's a sin of immorality, sin of idolatry, sin of love of money, sin of gossip, sin of pride, whatever, whatever the sin may be, it will always hinder our race. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a particular sin. He's not talking about sins. He's talking about the sin, definite article. Let's lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily besets us. What's the sin? Well, the sin in context is the sin of unbelief. Unbelief in who God is and what God did. Unbelief that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's already proven to them through the first 10 chapters that Christ is better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. He's brought in the new covenant. He's the fulfillment of the new covenant. So it's better than the old covenant, so he's already shown them who the Messiah is. Well, unbelief, that's the sin that keeps you out of the race. Now, we know that every sin comes about because I don't believe. I sin because I don't really believe what God says. I, I sin because I, can, I believe that my way is better than God's way, that I can be satisfied a different way than what God says. So I sin. I do my own thing. I don't believe in what God says. So we know that behind every sin is unbelief in terms of what God has stated in his word. But the unbelief in the context is the unbelief that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he came to die for their sins, ushered in the new covenant promise, 
and that everything they hoped for was rooted in Christ himself. But what about the weight, the encumbrance, the weights? You know as well as I do that when you, when you run a race, you've you got to get rid of all the excess baggage, right? If you watch the Olympics, you know that they go out and they warm up in their sweats, but they take their sweats off because they have to run these little skippy little shorts that are really, really light, right? And these tank tops that are, that are basically see-through, and they're very, very light because they don't want any hindrance, any encumbrance, any weight, any bulk, anything that's going to handicap them from running as quickly and as fast as they possibly can. So the writer of Hebrews says, look, if you're going to run the race effectively, you have to lay aside every encumbrance, every bulk, everything that's going to weigh you down to keep you from being all that God wants you to be. The weights are not sin. The sin can be a weight, but the weight is not sin. He differentiates between the two. So what are the weights? Well, if I'm a Jew in those days, right, and I'm listening to this, that which weighs me down are the rituals of Judaism, are the ceremonies, all those things, all those shadows and all those types that pointed to the substance. I've got to lay those things aside and embrace everything they pointed to as my Messiah because they will slow me down. They will weigh me down. But if I'm a Gentile like we are today, what becomes the weight for us? What hinders my race? Well, there are a myriad of them. But let me just give you a few, okay? So I, I can meddle for a little bit, right? Procrastination's a weight. Did you know that? Procrastination's a weight. Putting things off. You know, why do today what I can do tomorrow, right? So I just put it off. Procrastination can become a very heavy weight in the race of faith. It hinders my ability to keep on keeping on. It can discourage me. Why? Because the longer I put things off, the longer I put off my responsibility to get things done, right, the greater the responsibility comes. And so I've got to get it done. The lack of discipline leads to that, right? A lack of discipline is a very heavy weight around our lives, an undisciplined life is, as, as Vance Hadner used to say, is, is just not worth living. But even beyond that, just think about all the things that, that weigh us down. Relationships. Good relationships can weigh you down. Did you know that? When I was in college, I was a senior, and there, there, there was an incoming freshman, and she was from California. And she was one of the court of women who were up for be the rose queen, right? She was one of those women, right? She was stunning. She came as a freshman to the college I was at. And uh, her brother was my age, and we were friends, and we lived in the same dorm together. And she began dating a young man who was a sophomore in, in college. And we thought that this was a match made in heaven, you know? You know, she was a beauty queen, and he was athletic and good-looking, and it wasn't me. I know you think it's me. It wasn't me, okay? But, uh, and so they got together, and they started dating, and we, we thought for sure they were going to get married. And after about eight months, they broke up. So one day, I went to her, and I said, I, I said Arlene, what, what, what took place? What happened? How, how come you broke up with this guy? He said, you know, my heart's desire is, is to be on the mission field, and his wasn't. And I realized that 
because God had called me to, to missions. And I'm going to do that. And his isn't. There was no sense in us dating anymore because he would become a hindrance to that ministry. And they both broke off the engagement, or not the engagement, the relationship. You know, that, that was a mature decision as an 18-year-old freshman, realizing that she knew God's call upon her life. And later on, she, she went off the mission field. She, she met a guy. They got married. They have children today, and, and God has blessed them immensely. But she realized that this other person who was a great man who loved the Lord, right, was a hindrance to her future ministry. And they broke off that relationship. It's very important. If you date an unbeliever, right, that unbeliever becomes a hindrance to your walk of faith, right? And as parents, we need to be able to guide our children in their relationships to be able to say, no, this is a no-go. This is not good for you. We can see things that maybe you don't see because we've been around the block longer than you've been around the block. This is not a good relationship. Because if you marry that unbeliever, right, now you're unequally yoked. What fellowship about light with darkness? Now you've entered into a sinful relationship. But yet, you have to really realize that before it ever gets going, that can be a very big hindrance in your walk with the Lord. A good relationship can hinder. We talked about this on Wednesday night. Peter, the Lord. Peter wanted to thwart the mission of Christ by going to the cross. And Christ said to him, get thee behind me, Satan. Because Peter didn't have in mind the purposes of God. He only had in mind his purposes. And so we have to be very, very careful. Well, how about this one? This is a good one. Your cell phone. No, now see, now I'm getting really down to the nitty gritty. Your cell phone can be a big, big weight in your race of faith. And we don't even know it. We don't, we don't even get it. I have seen the tops of people's heads more now than ever in the history of mankind. Because people walk down the street like this, you know. You go to Disneyland, they're all like this. They all stand in line, they're all like this. So I can see the top of their head, but I don't see their eyes anymore because they're always looking down, they're on the phones. Always, always, always on the phones. It, it's unbelievable to me. But our cell phones, and, and I think you ought to have a cell phone. I really do. But we got to be careful about social media and how it engulfs us and, and takes our eyes off of that which needs to be happening. It, it can become a very big hindrance to our walk of faith, right? Listen, your cell phone and social media has depleted interpersonal relationships, has destroyed interpersonal relationships. We think we have a relationship with somebody because we share an Instagram with them, although we've never met them. We think we're good friends with them. No, you're not. You don't even know who they are. But we think that's our best friend because they respond to what I say on Instagram. You see, we, 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 we have, our, our relationships are so superficial today. We don't pick up a phone and have a conversation with people. We text them. We email them. We don't interact anymore. And all of a sudden, our whole walk of faith is becoming a burden because of this one thing hanging around our neck which is simply a cell phone. It can, it can distract us. You get up in the morning. What's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? You got to check and see if anybody contacted you in the middle of the night, right? Who has texted me? Who has emailed me? Who is interested in me? So we check our phone. First thing we do in the morning, right? 
We don't get up and say, man, i got to check the scriptures. What does God have to say for me today? No, i got to check and see what somebody else has said to me today through email or text or tweets or whatever else people are going to communicate with me by, right? We've got to be very careful about those things because they hinder our walk with the Lord. You can see how easily those things can distract us when you have people emailing you all day, texting you all day, trying to communicate to you all day. You're always on your phone. When you, when you have a meeting, okay, in your office, okay, what I do is I take my phone off my desk and I put it in my backpack. So I can, when I talk to somebody, if someone contacts me on my phone, I don't know. Because I don't want that person to think that someone on the phone is more important than they are. So I want to talk to them without any distractions. Now, I'm saying all this simply because it's so easy for us to be so enraptured with that little phone that we hold in our hands that it's, it's occupied all of our time, all of our attention, almost so that we can't live without it. What would happen if all the cell towers went down? People would go ballistic. They wouldn't know how to live, right? They wouldn't know how to use a, a pay phone. We don't even have pay phones anymore, right? But they wouldn't know how to use those things. But it's just, it's just the way it is. But we have to be careful about those things that hinder the race of faith. Anything that's going to distract me from the purpose that God's called me to do, to honor him and to glorify his name, that's going to keep me away from the word of God, keep me out of the word of God, I've got to be careful of. Your cell phone is not sinful. Okay? It can become a very sinful habit, a very bad habit. You've got to be careful of, right? I think you all ought to have cell phones. I think you ought to be able to be contacted. I think that's important. But that which is a virtue can become your greatest vice. And you can be very careful about that. It can become a huge hindrance in our race of faith simply because it distracts us from looking at the things we need to look at and studying the things we need to study and investing in the things we need to invest in. Very important. So there needs to be, number one, an investigation of all these witnesses. Number two, there needs to be a separation of whatever weight that holds me back from running the race effectively and the sin which so easily besets me. Remember what Paul said? He said in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that, we, that no good soldier entangles himself in the affairs of this world so that he may please his commanding officer. The affairs of this world are not sinful. There's the everyday things that we do. No good soldier entangles himself in the affairs of this world. In other words, he doesn't get so involved in doing the things, the mundane things of every day, that he loses his purpose in life. That's another way of saying laying aside all those weights that so easily entangle us, that, that, that weigh us down. Because a good soldier doesn't want to be involved in so many things that are extracurricular that he can't do the thing that God's called him to do. He wants to please his commanding officer. So anything that keeps you from pleasing your commanding officer is a weight. Make sure you let that set it aside. Or at least discipline yourself in how you deal with it. Right? Watching TV. That can be a weight. Right? I, I could list many of them for you. But you've got to separate yourself from those things if you want to run and not grow weary. Not lose heart. An investigation. A separation. Number three, a determination. A determination of my will. Look what the writer says. He says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance. That, that Greek word, hupomone, which means to bear up under pressure. You've got to be able to bear up under pressure, right? It's so important to realize that pressure is pleasure. We don't like pressure, but it's the most pleasurable experience you could ever have because you have to trust the Lord through it. Pressure is pleasure. And so pray for more pressure so you can live a life of pleasure. Understand this, that that pressure that comes, all the people in Hebrews 11 lived pressure-filled lives, right? All of them did. That's why some of them are sawn in two. Saw that last week, right? Some of them died by sword. They, they died in excruciating kinds of ways. They were rejected. They were isolated. Talk about pressure. They all faced pressure. Every one of them did. Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Sarah, Isaac, Abel, Enoch, Gideon, Barak. The list goes on. Every one of them faced pressure, right? But they rose to the occasion because they trusted and obeyed. They, they believed in what God said. And were able to follow through on what God said. And they lived lives of immense pressure. So many times as parents, we, we want to free our children from pressure. I guess I'm a bad parent. Because I want to put my kids in the most pressure-filled experiences possible. I want them in there. I want them to face the fire. I want them to understand that in the midst of pressure, this is where you shine. So I'm looking for ways to put them in the most pressure-cooked place I can possibly put them. Because I want them to rise to the occasion. I don't want them to live cozy, comfy lives. Cushy lives. That does them no good. It doesn't prepare them for life. Because life is filled with all kinds of pressure. It could be financial pressure, right? Economic pressure. It could be social pressure. It, it, it could be um, uh, temptation that comes your way. That kind of pressure. There's always pressure in your life. But those who run the race of faith are able to bear up under that pressure. The word for race is where we get our English word agony, Okay? They endure the agony. How do they do that? By believing in what God says. The, the race is not, is not a, a, a little you know, jog through the park. You know, when, you, when you go running you know, uh, and, and, and go jogging, I don't know why people do that, but they, but they do. I never, I never understood. I belong, belong to Joggers Anonymous, right? So every time the urge comes up, you know, I, just, I just call someone until the urge goes away. Because I, I don't understand why people jog. They, they, just do, they run nowhere, but they just run. They just keep running and running and running, and I don't understand that. But that's what they do. And more power to them because I can never do that. But, but the people who run in the, in the race of faith, they're running to obtain a prize. They're running with, fixed on a goal. They know where they're going, right? And, and they, they want to attain that goal. And they are determined that no matter what the pressure comes their way, because it's going to come from every angle, right or left, up or down, front or back, it's going to come. And they're going to run that race effectively because there's a great determination of their will. They are bound and determined because they've already separated themselves from those things that will deter, detract, or deflect them from running effectively. And they've set aside every encumbrance, and they've focused on in on those people who have already run the race of faith. They might see the example set before them. And they are now bound and determined to fulfill all that God has set. And that's what they want to do. 
There's a determination. We, we live in a society where people are not determined to do the things of God nearly as much as they used to be. We are determined to do things that are, that, that are temporary and don't have eternal value. You know, we become passionate about the things that don't matter and passive about the things that do matter. Instead of passionate about the things that do and the passive about the things that don't. And so there needs to be a determination of the will that's able to bear up under pressure because I really believe what God says. And therefore, I want to obey all that he says. And then fourthly, there's a fixation. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. Maybe your text says, looking unto Jesus. It's a fixation. Totally fixed on one person. That's Christ himself. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. He's the originator. He's the author. He's the leader. He's the supreme one, right? He's the one where we get the gift of faith from. And he's the one that lived the ultimate life of faith, right? Remember Hebrews 11, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? So Matthew, uh, Mark 1, 11 says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Why was God the Father well pleased with his son? Because he lived a life of trusting obedience. He lived a life of ultimate faith in his Father above. You see, that's so important. So here was the author, the perfecter, the finisher, the one who was able to complete it all the way to the end. So there needs to be a fixation upon the person and work of Christ himself. Look unto Jesus. Paul said in Colossians 3, set your affections on things above, not on things below. You know, there's a reason when in a horse race, horses have blinders. So they can't see to the left or to the right of them. When you run, you run fixed on one goal, the goal in front of you. You don't look to the right, you don't look to the left, but your goal is right in front of you and your eyes are fixated on that goal. Same is true with the spiritual realm. We are fixated on the Christ. We are focused so much on him that we cannot keep our eyes off of him because once we lose that opportunity, we are distracted. You ever ever talk to your kids? You know, your kids are out playing and one of them gets in trouble. So you call them in, right? You call them in and you want to talk to them. And they're they're doing this. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. uh They're looking over here. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. uh But they want to be over there, but they're looking at you here, but not really looking at you there. Looking over there. And you want to say, hey, right here, pal. Look right here. And they're like, okay, uh-huh. And they just can't stop looking over there. They are not fixed on you. Why? Because they want to do what's going on over there. You want them fixed on you so they understand what they can and cannot do. You want their eyes glued to you. Christ wants our eyes glued on him, fixated upon him. But we want to run the race kind of looking over here. And well, what about that guy? What's, he, what's that guy doing over there? And run, what's that, what the... Uh, What's going on? You know, and, and instead of fixed right on Christ himself, that we might say he is the author, he is the perfecter of our faith, we want to follow him because he is the leader of all things. So there is an investigation, there is a separation, there is a determination, there is a fixation, and then there is a consideration. But the Bible says these words, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him 
who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. It's a mathematical term. We sit down and add up all the facts, look at him, come to a conclusion. Consider him. There needs to be a great consideration of the Christ. He endured such hostility. But you know what? You need to consider his passion. Consider his person. And consider his position, where he is today. Consider his person, who he is, all that he endured, all the hostility he faced. He never wavered. He was true to the end. His passion. What was his passion? The joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. What was the joy that was set before him? Hebrews 2, verse number 10. That he would redeem many sons for glory. He was looking to redeem his bride. Right? This was the joy that was set before him. He knew that through his death on Calvary's cross, many people would be redeemed. And those who were redeemed would be his bride. And that was a joy. That's why the crown of joy, the crown of jubilation, is about lost souls coming to saving faith. That one of the crowns we receive in Gloria is a crown that centers around the fact that we've shared the gospel with others and they've come to saving faith in Christ. The crown, the crown of joy, the crown of jubilation. And the joy that was set before Christ was that there would be many, many sons brought to glory. That was his passion. And then we consider his position. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Wow, what a position. A throne that you and I one day will sit upon as well. Revelation chapter 3 tells us that we will one day occupy that same throne with the Son of God because we are heirs of God and join us with Christ. That's his position. He'd been elevated to the highest position, the exalted, living Christ, because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Our whole life should be a consideration of what he endured and how he endured it, a consideration of the joy that was set before him, a consideration of the, the passion and person and position of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord wants us to do. Consider him above all else. Look at him. And see what he did and follow him. That's why Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 should in reality be a part of Hebrews chapter 11. Because it's the ultimate conclusion of what it means to live the life of faith. He did. And as we engage in this race every day, right, there is this constant reminder that we need to look into the lives of those who have already ran the race. Investigate them. They're in the Scriptures. They're there for you to study. And once you study them, you've got to get rid of all those things that hinder you running effectively. Those things that are dragging you down. Those things that are good, but not best. If it's not best, and it's only good, maybe you should lay it aside. So that you might run effectively. And the sin, which so easily besets us, the sin of unbelief. And then, after that, be determined to bear up under all the pressure. It's going to come. Oh, it's going to come. It's going to come in waves at times. But are you going to be able to stand strong because you've seen how others before you stood strong and how you have let go of all those things that have hindered your running 
the race of faith. And you do that when you fix your eyes completely upon Jesus Christ our Lord, who he is and what he's done. Consider him who endured all that hostility. And yet where is he now? He's at the right hand of God the Father in glory. That's our Lord. We consider him. May God give us the grace to run the race of faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. The joy that you've given to us in your word. You truly are a great God and you alone are worthy of praise. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done. Please, please, Lord, as we leave this place, if there's someone here who has yet to enter the race of faith, may today be that day. For those of us who are already in the race, encourage us, Lord, to remain steadfast, immovable, focused completely upon the Christ, setting our affections above and not below, that we might run the race effectively for the glory of your kingdom. Until you come again as you most surely will. In Jesus' name.